Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 27. In the last episode, I covered the places of the Wadi Kana and Beth Sheen, or as the Greeks called it, Scythopolis. I also touched on the little known about the people called the Archites, along with a natural form of gold sometimes referred to as electrum. All of these found in the middle portion of Joshua when the boundaries between the tribes are reiterated. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing through that part of the narrative of the book. And with that, let's get started. First up is a place I didn't have the time to cover last week, and that's found in Joshua 16, the place, or maybe the region, of Genoa. It's said to be on the border of the Ephraimites, which finally gives me something to cover. The only other place it's found in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings 15, embedded in the list of cities captured by the Neo-Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser, along with Kadesh, Hazer, and Gilead, among a few others. But that isn't why I'm covering it. There is also the outside record, which does have a little bit to say, too. First things first, the city of Genoa is thought to be the same place as the modern city of Yanin. This places it on the west bank of the Jordan, about 11 miles, 18 kilometers, from the river, and nearly midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, firmly in the modern country of Israel. It's situated in a small valley with a natural spring to the north, about a mile away. As with most places I've covered recently, the most frequent artifact found at the ancient site is pottery, and in the case of this city, it only dates back to the Middle Iron Age, likely meaning what was during the reign of kings Saul, David, and Solomon. What this also means is that no artifacts have been found that date to the time of the text of Joshua, at least not yet. The pottery pieces do indicate that the site was likely continuously occupied from the Middle Iron Age through the Crusader period. Also in the area are several caves, believed to have been used as housing during the Canaanite period. Going forward over a thousand years, to the Byzantine era, there are tombs carved into the same rocky hillsides. Ottoman tax records from the 16th century show a few families living there, but not much else. Though these records were thorough enough to list crops and other agricultural products including wheat, barley, olives, goats, beehives, and a press for either olives or grapes. The tax rate at the time was a third of the residents' annual production, and probably not graduated. In the 19th century, American biblical archaeologist Edward Robinson visited the city, but recorded little more than a few ruins in occupied houses. A very ordinary city, town, whichever. After the Ottomans picked the wrong side in World War I, the area came under British control as part of mandatory Palestine. Eventually, it would become part of Jordan, where it remained until 1967's Six-Day War when the Israelis gained control, which they have maintained ever since. And that's Genoa turned Yanin. Moving along. Which gets me to the next chapter in the text, Joshua 17. 
I covered the few places in the beginning of this chapter last week. So, I'll begin this episode with the Canaanite city of Endor. The text of 17 tells us that the Israelites did not drive out the inhabitants of Endor, which wasn't that unusual as it was embedded in a list of cities that were in the same situation. All of these, at least those found in this part of the text, were located within the boundaries of the western portion of Manasseh. There is another place named Dor, which some believe is one and the same as Endor, but I'm going to treat them separately, if only because Joshua does the same. There, we're told, within Issachar and Asher, Manasseh had Bethshean and its villages, Ibelium and its villages, the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, among many others. The city of Endor merited an additional mention in Psalms 83, but only as a geographic place name. It was here, at least according to the psalmist, that Jabin, the king of Hazor and his army, were routed by Barak and Deborah, and is found in Judges chapters 4 and 5. Do note that the mention in Joshua has a hyphen between the words in and door, at least in the New Revised Standard. It's also mentioned in 1 Samuel, but without the hyphen. I'll get to that passage in a second. Throughout the King James and NIV, it's listed without the hyphen. This was a decision made by the various translators, and in my opinion doesn't neither add nor detract from any of the interpretations. As for that passage in 1 Samuel, it's a curious story. After the prophet Samuel had died, and while Saul was king of the united Israel, Saul had the mediums and wizards expelled from Israel. The Philistines assembled and encamped at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the assembled Philistine army, he was afraid with terror filling his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams, or Urim, or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. They told him one such woman could be found at Endor. Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night, he and two men went to the woman. Saul told her, Consult a spirit for me, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and wizards from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. She believed him, and as a medium, you would have thought she knew this as he arrived. But she did not. Anyway, then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Saul requested that she bring up Samuel, and she did. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice, and she said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The now revealed King Saul said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? An old man wearing a robe is coming up. The story continues with Samuel addressing Saul, first wanting to know why the king has disturbed the prophet. Seems reasonable. 
Samuel then tells Saul that God has turned his back on him and he will lose to the Philistines. Obviously, Saul was distressed by this. My point in telling the story is that these events occurred in Endor, and in my mind, at least in this case, it was more than just a geographic location, that the medium woman, in some versions called a witch, stayed in the city even after Saul had driven out all such wizards and witches from the land, it shows that he didn't have complete control over the city. But he did have just enough that the woman, who was likely Canaanite, was fearful of the king. Which gets me back to the city. Endor was mentioned twice in the Deuterocanonical book of 1 Maccabees, in both cases in reference to King Antiochus IV's siege of the city in the 2nd century BC, during the Maccabean Revolt. And that's it in the text. The city was thought by some to be located between the Hill of Mora and Mount Tabor, which would place it in the Jezreel Valley. Its believed location on the south edge of the Jezreel Valley seems to fit the biblical descriptions best. These hints in the text are found in the tribal allotments of Manasseh, Saul's journey to Endor to meet up with the soothsayer, and the defeat of the Hazerite army. And they all point to this general area, likely somewhere between the also-obscure places of Ibleum and Tanuk. The name seems to indicate that there may have been a nearby spring. This shouldn't be surprising, as all places need a source of water. Spring, lake, stream, well something to hydrate the residents. Also, if a location is uncovered, it would need to yield archaeological evidence. So, the location in the southern Jezreel Valley is the common belief, though there are other suggested places. But, the overall theory about artifacts is that there would also need to be something dating to the period of Joshua, the judges, and the uniting of the kingdom under Saul, at a minimum. An alternate location is on the north side of the Jezreel Valley, near, or maybe even on, the Hill of Mora. Supporting this theory is that the name of the town more closely resembles the Canaanite language dialect recorded near there. Also, tradition holds that it was located in this region. But the northern part of the valley less closely aligns with the biblical narrative. Specifically, when the names of the various Canaanite cities are listed in Joshua 17 and Judges 1, the position of Endor would be out of geographic order if it were located in the north. Opposite of this, the story of King Saul traveling to meet the soothsayer makes a little more sense with a northern location in the broader context of the narrative where it is found. Recall that he sought out this fortune teller when the Israelites were threatened by the Philistines. One detail in the story seems to support this, and that's that Saul, who was king, needed to disguise himself. This is usually ascribed to the fact that Endor, if in the north, would have likely been behind enemy lines, since the Philistines were encamped at Shunem, just southwest of the most accepted northern Endor site. Researchers who support the southern site explain the disguise as necessary not to cross any enemy lines, 
but to hide Saul's identity as the king, and therefore the source of the no-fortune-telling edict, to hide this from the media. Both explanations are plausible. In both regions, a few name sites have been suggested. These include the southern town of Kirbet Jadara, but there is no nearby spring. There's also the southern Tel Kadesh, which is considered more likely than Jadara. Here, there are two nearby springs, along with artifacts from the correct era. Like most places on Tels, it also had a defensive wall. Researchers who hold on to the southern Jezreel Valley for the city usually point to Kadesh. In the northern Jezreel Valley, there's the hilltop Tel Agul. This small hill, about 700 feet, just over 200 meters high, is located about two miles, three kilometers east of the village of Nain. In exploring this site, archaeologists have uncovered tombs and a spring inside a cave. The spring was named the Fountain of Dor, after it was believed to be the ancient site of Endor. But this naming occurred well after the biblical era, and is nothing more than the suppositions of past inhabitants. There's also the appropriately named Endor. This was a Palestinian Arab town that was abandoned during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Obviously, the name lends some credence to it being the ancient city. But remember, a few minutes ago when I said that tradition held it was in the north, the name of this town was part of that tradition. After the mid-20th century conflict, archaeologists excavated portions of the town, but found absolutely no artifacts from the Old Testament period, so likely not there. Finally, there's Kirbet Safa. If you see Endor on a map, and not the modern Palestinian city, but on an ancient map, it's likely this city. It's about four miles, seven kilometers northeast of the modern Sulam which places it south of Mount Tabor and southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Two wadis are sourced in the general area, evidencing at least seasonal surface water availability and increasing the likelihood that a well will be useful. Like the modern city of Endor, it was inhabited in the mid-20th century, in its case by Arabs, and it too was abandoned during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. After that conflict, it was re-established by Israelis and renamed Eindor. It also has traditional support as the actual location. Since about the 4th century AD, this location has been recognized by Christian pilgrims, in that case early pilgrims, as the Old Testament city. The not-so-much-later crusaders would carry that thought forward through time to the point that a 14th century German priest named Brocardus identified this indoor as the actual location. The 19th century researcher Edward Robinson described it as an ordinary village. No surprise there, as the region was full of ordinary villages. There's also the nearby village of Indur, in this case spelled with an I. Some think the similar names lend credence to this being the location, though I'm not sure what that really adds. And that's the little that's known in a whole bunch of speculation about Endor. Moving along. That's it for Chapter 17. 
chapter 18 begins with the header telling us it concerns the territory allotted to the remaining tribes. A list that bleeds into the next chapter and includes Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulon, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, and the land given specifically to Joshua. But before all of that, the city of Shiloh is mentioned. It was at this place that the whole congregation of Israelites assembled and set up the tent of meeting. From here, they could see the land of Canaan before them, which was said to have been subdued. From there, meaning Shiloh, the remaining seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned were given an assignment. Joshua said to the Israelites, How long will you be slack about going in and taking possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may begin to go throughout the land, writing a description of it with a view to their inheritances. Then come back to me. They were to describe the land in seven separate divisions and bring the description back to Joshua. He would then cast lots to decide what tribe got which portion. So they did as they were told, with the men going on their way to explore and divide up the land. Eventually, and we're not told how long it took, but they eventually made it back to Shiloh, where Joshua cast the lots and assigned out the territory. Before I get to that final assignment of territory, first up in 18 is the city of Shiloh. This city was in ancient Samaria, meaning the central region of ancient Israel, bordered by Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. Unlike many of the places I've covered, there is a place positively identified as this city. In this case, it's the modern city of Kirbit Silan. More on that in a minute. There's also a tell at the site, aptly named Tel Shiloh. Both of these places are located on the west bank of the Jordan. Later in the Old Testament, but not much later, Shiloh would become the center of the Israelite religion. At some point while the religion was based at Shiloh, the portable tent of meeting seems to have been enclosed within a compound, meaning a specific purpose-built area. It was at Shiloh that the Aaronite high priest Eli and the prophet Samuel resided. At some unspecified point, the tent of meeting was moved to Gibeon, which became an Israelite holy site under David and Solomon. While Shiloh was the, or one of the, religious centers, and because the tent and ark were there, many Israelites made pilgrimages to the city for major feasts and sacrifices. Judges 21 also mentions that the city was the site of an annual dance of maidens among the vineyards. This was before Jerusalem was captured from the Jebusites and the first temple built. After that, and while David was king, the religious center moved to Jerusalem. And this isn't surprising, considering that was where the Israelites set up the tent of meeting while waiting on the three men from each tribe to return. One thing I didn't mention earlier was that after the remaining territory was divvied out, it was also here that the Levites were assigned their cities within the territories of the other tribes. Elsewhere in the Old Testament text, the city merits several mentions. 
it was said to be north of Bethel, south of Labona, and in the hill country in the territory assigned to Ephraim. Also, there were the usual assortment of geographic mentions. In ancient Hebrew, meaning the language, the name means peace or tranquility. There's even a belief that the most accurate translation is to Pleasantville. In the outside record, and before the Israelites crossed the Jordan, Shiloh was already a religious center, in this case for the Canaanites. They had a wall built around the city as early as the Middle to Late Bronze Age. As for the location at Kirbet Selin, American researcher Edward Robinson identified the location in 1838. But he wasn't the first, just the modern first. The location had previously been identified by the 4th century A.D. Roman writer Eusebius. Scholar William F. Albright proposed that the Philistines destroyed Shiloh when they defeated the Israelites and seized the Ark. Do know that this theory is not without many detractors. Though ancient rabbinic commentary does lend some credence to his proposal, or it may have been destroyed later. But there's something else. Archaeological excavations show the city was settled sometime around 1750 and remained so until about the 8th century BC. On the tell was a 24-foot, over 7-meter-tall wall, and the usual pottery, animal bones, weapons, and the like. There were a much smaller number of artifacts from later periods, which would tend to indicate that it had been largely abandoned. During the time of the Israelites' occupation, there were some 20 grain silos that contained traces of the crop all of this pointing to the site being largely abandoned around 1050 B.C., which would roughly align with the defeat of the Israelites at the hands of the Philistines. And by roughly, I mean within about 100 years, plus or minus. Either way, by the time Jeremiah wrote his prophecy in the 6th century B.C., Shiloh had been destroyed with the prophet using its destruction as an example of God's judgment. Writers after this, including Jerome, Theodosius, and many maps including the Madaba map and one from 14th century Florence, literally had the location of the city all over the map, indicating it had been destroyed and its true location had been lost to the passage of time. Later, after their invasion, Muslims would claim to have built a mosque at Shiloh. The Crusaders drove the Muslims off and took over the mosque, asserting something known as the Stone of the Table could be found there. Either way, there's no proof the mosque was built at Shiloh. But, in the uncovered remains of the city that is now thought to be the ancient Shiloh, there are ruins of a Byzantine church built in the 5th century A.D., All total, three different churches have been uncovered in the city, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. And before signing off, a little explanation. There's something else, perhaps subtle, about this episode. Unlike the 250-plus I've recorded to date, 
This one was done a bit differently. Maybe you noticed. Maybe you didn't. Unlike all the other episodes to date, I had to do this one in two separate sittings, and perhaps my voice is a little different. Up until this point, I've managed to navigate the complexities of my schedule without such a break, but the week the first half of this episode was written and recorded was particularly and unpredictably busy at work, and I needed to get on the road, well, really, in the air, to see my mom for Mother's Day. What that means is the first two-thirds or so were written and recorded pre-trip. The last part will be written while on the road and recorded when I get back. Likely late Sunday evening, maybe Monday. So it goes sometimes when you try to thread a very small needle. With that explanation in mind, that's the reason for the change in tone. Moving along. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.